Are you troubled by strange noises in the night? Do you experience feelings of dread in your basement or attic? Have you or any of your family ever seen a spook, specter, or ghost? If the answer is yes, then don't wait another minute. Pick up your phone and call the professionals. Ghostbusters! Ghostbusters. Our courteous and efficient staff is on call 24 hours a day to serve all your supernatural elimination needs. We're ready to believe you! Hello, my name's Adam Spring, and this is a Halloween Remotely Interested podcast, hosted at remotely-interested.com. My guest for this episode is a ghost hunter. It's Chris Jensen Roma. I've known Chris since 1999, and Chris is really kind of a personification of what this podcast is all about. Now, recently, I did an interview with Georgia Tech Radio. They were asking me about my podcast, you know, why I did it, how it came about, and I decided that, you know, a really interesting thing about doing this is the fact that there are no boundaries, only the ones that you create. And I think Chris, he really epitomizes that in the sense that he's a ghost hunter, he's a parapsychologist, but also as well, as you'll hear, He's very much a rationalist, and while this one is clearly a Halloween special, it raises a good point about people studying things that may be otherwise on the fringe, in the sense of, when I'm talking to Chris, it's clear that he's intermingling many things in order to question some, you know, unusual things, shall we say. Anyway, there are many links to this one because it is an extended episode, and you can find those over at the SoundCloud on the profile. There's also links to the social media down the side of the SoundCloud as well and of course you can always go to remotely-interested.com if you want to check out that Georgia Tech Radio interview which is in my publications section. Anyway I hope you enjoy this spooky episode for the Halloween season. I've really enjoyed doing this one for you. I will leave you now with Chris and have a happy Halloween. Um... I'm a ghost hunter. I suppose I had to go, um, because it sounds so ridiculous, but I could say I'm an academic parapsychologist, but then people just look at me funny and on the doll forms, it doesn't do anything, uh, you know, when you're applying for social security over here. Because as soon as you say you're an academic parapsychologist, that's it. You're thrown out of the university. You don't get a job. Anyone who's seen Ghostbusters knows that really, don't they? Have you seen the new Ghostbusters? I have indeed. I have seen the new Ghostbusters. Well, you know what it's like to be an academic parapsychologist then. Yeah, that's what I do. I investigate ghosts and hauntings and poltergeists. And how exactly did you get into that? I was going to go to Durham University and study Anglo-Saxon and archaeology. That was my plan. And then when I was 18 years old, I was with five friends. Well, there were five of us in total, four friends. And we stopped off so someone could pop to the loo at an old ruin in Norfolk, England, Fetford Priory. And while we were there, it was broad daylight, August the 8th, 1987. We were all 18. It was a sunny day, late in the afternoon, but the sun was still high in the sky. And there's this old ruined, crumbling, gothic kind of priory ruin, a kind of monastic house. And obviously you think such things are a bit creepy, but they're not because, you know, we grew up with this kind of thing. There's one of there's a similar kind of ruin in the town where I actually went to school so anyway we weren't paying much attention we were in a kind of public park and one of the guys said who's that joker dressed up as a ghost looking at us out the window and we turned around there was a kind of half ruined building behind us and what appeared to be a guy with a black sheet over his head well you can imagine we're 18 lads it's broad daylight and a guy dressed as a ghostly monk is you know watching us from a window so we immediately start to walk towards the building rather than run away we're rather amused and this guy comes down a stairs 
staircase through a small arc. And my friend Darren says, let's get him. And I think he had visions of Scooby-Doo, you know, and I'd have gotten away with it if it wasn't for you meddling kids. But Darren took off running towards the guy. I took off after him. We ran all the way across this green, up the stairs. We went up the stairs to chase this bloke because we were going to grab him. And uh, we fell through the staircase because not only was there not actually a guy there, there wasn't a bloke dressed as a ghost. Whatever it was, we saw it wasn't anything physical. But the staircase that we'd seen him come down didn't exist either. That was also an illusion. And that was the moment when I threw away my plans and went off to university and studied religion, philosophy of science, psychology and all the other things I carried on doing for the next 20 years. So there you go. There's my dull ghost story. But I suppose, isn't that what we all have our own ghost stories, don't we? Have you ever seen a ghost? I haven't, actually. Not at all. Not that I'm aware of. It's unusual, isn't it? I mean, I think most people... Do your family have any ghost stories? Yeah, I mean, you know, I grew up in Cornwall, so Cornwall is a place very much of ghost stories. You know, the obvious one is the ones tied to smuggling and things like that. So headless coachmen going up through the street and, you know, where I was from. Yeah, there were several stories, you know, like, for instance, I guess one that my grandmother used to tell of a person that she knew, supposedly the guy's father, walked him home one night. Obviously, the guy was dead, the father being dead. And supposedly, once the guy had gotten to the door he was sort of talking to the guy but the guy was shrouded as soon as he got to the door the guy took the hoodie or whatever it was off the guy realized it was his dead dad and the dead dad said i don't ever want to see you out again at this time of the morning it's not safe don't do this again and then disappeared so yeah so there, there are cases of those sort of things good story isn't it the only one i know it's not really like that but my dad he told me a ghost story. In fact, that was why I decided ghosts were a load of rubbish was my parents would occasionally tell stories about ghosts. And one of them was my, my dad told me where he built a bungalow and it was during the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis. So he decided to build a nuclear sh- a nuclear bunker under the bungalow in 1962. And he dug out the, the foundations to build this great cellar that he lined with concrete about 30 foot deep. Slightly eccentric thing to do, but you know, I'm fit. my family are slightly nuts. Anyway, dad, while he was digging away, he found all these skeletons and after he got to 13 skeletons he phoned up the, the police and said um, <laughs> there's either a serial killer buried people here or something you know they're, they're quite old but I want you to come and have a look so they were taken to the coroner who got the archaeology unit out and they said it's a 13th century monastic burial ground from the hospice it's just you, you're digging up a cemetery so could you reinter them Mr Roma so he said yeah of course he said I'll, I'll say a prayer over them and I'll reinter the bones and uh, so he did except people kept coming and nicking his bricks and bricks were actually quite valuable and in the 60s they were still quite valuable you know people would come at night and steal his building materials and then he was worried they were going to nick his cement mixer while he was building the house so what he did in the end was he took one of the skulls and he took a night light on the end of a pole and he lit it up and he stuck the skull on a pole and he said that the guy who had been nicking his bricks took one look at it and ran off screaming as he came through the, in the dark and saw this skull hovering in the dark anyway as you can imagine after acting like that it's probably unsurprising that he decided his house was haunted and when i was a child apparently there were strange knockings and i'm i'm i can't remember i was a baby when we moved out but there were strange knockings and one night he swore at my grandfather who was standing wearing a brown coat on the other side of a frosted glass door just watching him and he kept saying come in come in you old man come in you silly old but the bike didn't come in and my father swears to this day that when he threw the door open there was no one there do 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 
and it was a ghost. So faced with stories like that, obviously I decided ghosts were a load of rubbish. But then when five of us saw something, we all saw roughly the same thing in broad daylight. And we all wrote our own witness statements. At that point, I decided, well, okay, this is some kind of collective hallucination. This needs to be scientifically studied. And that's what I went off to do. Now, I believe that uh, story was also recounted in a TV show that you were involved in as well, wasn't it? Oh, what, the one about Fetford Priory, how I came to see the ghost? Yeah, yeah. that ghost hunters, <laughs> 1990s, before the days of Most Haunted and before, um, oh, what do you call the American ghost hunters show? The one with TAPS, the Atlantic Paranormal Society, the Paranormal Plumbers and the whole 1990s media madness that, well, early 2000s media madness of live ghost hunting. In fact, the Student Parapsychology Society in Cheltenham had tried filming uh, a ghost hunt for entertainment purposes and we, we talked about actually, you know, trying to put it together into a into a documentary and I had actually pitched the idea to Granada sometime in the late 90s, 96, 97, but uh, it never happened. Granada didn't think it would work. They were probably right looking at what went on, but I suppose we were just a bit ahead of the curve there at the University of Gloucestershire as it became. So didn't you work on a number of uh, TV shows geared towards paranormal and ghost hunting and <laughs> yes. things like that as well? Yeah, I did. I did. I worked on, um, I, I think I worked out, I've worked on 13 different series at different times. So. Was that number intentional or was it uh, just no, by accident? No, it's, it's quite by accident. Kieran O'Keefe, parapsychologist, UK academic, he did a public lecture in which he, he charted the history of paranormal television and he got to about 30 shows and I was just counting as I went how many I'd actually done an episode or two of. But yeah, you know, if you're going to be a uh, fat frab just freak on TV, you may as well make your living making dodgy ghost shows, mightn't you? If you, it really is a bit piece of Venkman. There's a bit in Ghostbusters when Sigourney Weaver's character Dana turns to Venkman and says, "You don't seem much like a scientist." more like a game show host and that's really what it's become less less about being a scientist more of a game show host in that in some ways actually ghostbusters 1985 was an incredibly prescient movie well also dan Aykroyd as well is actually a massive sort of parapsychology guy isn't he is he always goes yeah. back to the fact that his family he comes from supposedly a family of clairvoyance and stuff like that he he really did his research didn't he he did he did and in fact he Ghostbusters actually influenced the field in a huge number of ways. In many ways, badly, but in some ways for the good. Certainly true that my experience is I preferred the university. They gave us money and resources and didn't expect anything, as they say in Ghostbusters. <laughs> I've worked in the private sector. They expect results. Unfortunately, that is far too true. And unfortunately, the moment you end up in anything to do with the media, your reputation goes out of the window, which Ghostbusters, the first film, certainly does do. But actually, one of the greatest things about Ghostbusters was it led to a whole generation of people walking around with tools that are ideal for monitoring if there's a nail or a wire in your wall and waving them around in search of ghosts. Do you know what I refer to? What's that? The EMF meter. Do you know what an EMF meter is? Electromagnetic field meter? Yeah, yeah. The little things that you buy at hardware stores on either UK or US voltage, but varying obviously, which basically tell you whether or not you're about to drill into a mains cable. Stud finder. Yeah. Stud finders, they're the things, you know the things. Yeah, EMF meters, they tell you that there's basically an electromagnetic field, you know, there's current running for a wire. They don't tell you at what frequency, they don't tell you the strength, really, they just tell you it's there. And they were taken on board by ghost hunters. And by the time I got involved with the great British ghost hunting show, Most Haunted, the one that really opened up the field, pretty much every ghost hunter in the country, to my astonishment, seemed to carry one of these around with them. And I'd ask them, well, what is your logic? Why are you carrying 
a stud finder. You know, what, what do you think it's going to do? And they said, ghosts give off EMF. And I was like, well, do they? I mean, pretty much, yeah, okay, a lot of things give up, gives off electromagnetic field, but what's the frequency? I mean, you know, there was this one time, there was, uh, there's an American EMF meter called the K2. And the K2's great because the frequency that's presumably used in some way for American wiring, mains wiring, is about 230 volts, isn't it? I don't know what the actual frequency is. But anyway, yeah. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, I don't know what the amperages, etc. But anyway, that is that for some reason picks up UK mobile phone transmissions. So the two meter is really popular in this country. People buy American ones because firstly, they don't pick up your mains. So you're not going to find accidentally discover that you, as I've seen people do, that they're following the ring main around the building, believing they're following a ghost or that, you know, they, they, they move on and mysteriously the ghost always ends up near the light bulb. That doesn't happen with a K2. Instead, what happens is anytime anyone uses their mobile phone or they, you know, they bring the meter near their mobile phone, it starts to bleed loudly. And there was one guy, he started out with this meter at arm's length and he's like, oh, picking something up. Oh, oh, it's coming towards me. And he was pulling the meter back closer and closer and closer until it ended up over his heart where he's screaming, it's trying to go into me. It's trying to go into me. So I reached forward and plucked his mobile phone out of his breast pocket. He just had a look of total dejection at that moment. But yeah, um, so why did EMF meters become popular in the 90s then, Adam, for ghost hunting? Well, I would assume it because of something like Ghostbusters, wouldn't it? Exactly. What's in, in Ghostbusters, there's the PKE meter. There is indeed, yeah. There is a meter that they hold in one hand that's got two wings that come out the side. And there are, in fact, enterprising individuals have actually now made EMF meters with the wings and the green lights to look oh, like wow. Wow. So assuming that ghosts are actually, you know, giving off a strong electromagnetic field, then yes, I'm sure they're very useful. Uh, the problem is that I have not seen anything to suggest to me that ghosts are electromagnetically charged. So I'm not convinced by their use. But the actual reason ghost hunters started to use them was because they look like the prop in the film, the PKE meter. So it's a really weird case of the ghost that the film, they needed a prop, a PKE meter, you know, a fictional device that says measures electro what do they call it ectoplasmic valence and tells you if the ghost is near and then in reality people to hardware stores and bought the device that looked the closest to it you know more recently i've noticed there's some sort of weird sound device frank fox the oculus there's dozens of them a chap called frank he died actually about a year ago very sad um i think he wasn't that old there's a really long history of people trying to talk to ghosts by technology and um edison famously devoted a few years to trying to build us a ghost phone so to speak a system that would let you dial up the afterlife and maybe it's not as daft as it sounds because you know the idea of ghostbusters is that ghosts are basically the, you know, physical entities which exist within the laws of physics and the Ghostbusters work out what those laws are and start blasting them using, it's not spiritual in any way, it's entirely physical, you know it's, it's hyperphysics. And if you watch the new Ghostbusters, it's quite interesting because none of them are actually parapsychologists anymore. Whereas the original Ghostbusters are parapsychologists and Ray is a physicist. Now, they're all physicists. The parapsychology side's completely gone. None of them are psychologists. You notice that? No, I didn't notice that, but that does make sense. I didn't notice that. In the re boot they're all they're actually technological you know that the solution is entirely technological and the suggestion that they need to know anything really about ghosts as being anything other than physical constructs is gone there is no spiritual sense parapsychology isn't mentioned pretty much in the new film anyway enough of that doesn't matter but what happened was from edison's time onwards people have tried to build devices that let you talk to the dead and raymond bayless wrote a book back in the 60s or early 70s called phone calls from the dead which are about those weird cases where the phone rings you pick it up and 
when you have a conversation with somebody and subsequently you discover that they're dead and or where somebody's died and you start to receive text messages purportedly from them or emails and you know and my friend Kel Cooper's just got his PhD this year actually I think he's just done his fever this week on doing research into phone calls and text messages from the dead and this is not experimental this is just you know random events and he's looking at those stories and analyzing them and trying to find ways in which it could happen and ways in which you know it, it, it can be explained away but he's also looking at you know the more inexplicable aspects of it great stuff anyway you ought to talk to Kel one day that's probably a, a different show in itself for another Halloween the point is though that um, there's a long history of people trying to build these devices back in the 50s and 60s they built a device called the Spiricom which was kind of radio that tried to talk to the dead I can't remember much about the details but then recently this guy called Frank thought well I know what I'll, I'll take a radio I'll take a randomizer and the randomizer will play two or three seconds or maybe half a second or it'll play a random short clip and then it will retune the frequency and if there's anything spirit out there what it will do is it will affect the randomization which I don't know if it was true random or pseudo random I'm not sure and it will spell out from different broadcasts words and then the ghost can use the box to talk. Now, there's only one fundamental problem with this, in my eyes, which is that it's a load of <coughs> nonsense. I can't, to me, you know, how... Sorry, I'm, I'm just having a major malfunction here. It just, it boggles my mind that anyone would believe this would work. But people have bought millions of these units, and they're extremely popular, and ghost hunters go into haunted houses. Now, I'm sounding like an immense skeptic. I'm not. I'm actually a passionate believer in ghosts. But this particular form of technology strikes me as just... Well, what do you think? I think, personally, a lot of it's to do with performance. I think in terms of, from my point of view, I'm wondering whether it's a chicken and egg scenario of someone's watching a TV show. Kind of similar with, like, the night vision thing. It creates an atmosphere or it creates a performance of some kind. That's that's what I think, personally. It's, it's a spectacle. One of the things that happened with Most Haunted was, well, quite a lot of things, was when I started going on the show and I was a researcher for them and I started to pay attention to this show, I had been, for many years before that, a decade before TV ghost hunting took off, I was in the academic research community and I'd done by that time 40 cases maybe and in in a traditional case what would happen is there would be I would turn up and simply take a pen and paper and talk to people and then we'd photograph the building draw some plans up try and work out what happened and and, you know those cases were very much around the witness testimony and trying to recreate the conditions we didn't really try and capture the ghost on camera because well we did but we know it wasn't a major part of the investigation if that makes sense the major part of the investigation was trying to find out what happened and how it happened and why it happened and trying to piece together information nowadays it's all about seeing the spook but nowadays it's all about entertainment and on most haunted in these things it's 24 hours in a haunted house so you turn up and it's all wham bam what happened to us what happens on the night i'll give you a story a true story about most haunted most haunted did live shows that were live broadcasts. this particular one went out i think to four million people it's from woodchester mansion down in gloucestershire and i was out the back with my friend phil wyman who was a presenter on it and he was the paranormal investigator on the show and david wells who was a medium stroke astrologer and we're in a room backstage which is you know off site because they wander around with the camera most of the crew you you kind of get the impression it's like four or five people in a haunted house but there might be on a live show 20 or 30 other people doing lighting rigging running around cabling so we were shoved in this room and the room in question was a tea room and we were standing there and there was some boxes of sweets and chocolates on the side and we were choking around just mucking about as 
mates do. We had a production mic and we knew we'd get a call when we needed to go into the main room and walk up through the audience to the main part and be introduced on camera and all that stuff. So we're just mucking around backstage laughing about and suddenly a chocolate bar lifts itself out of a box about head height, flies across to the middle of the room and then drops like a stone. So it doesn't like, you know, arch gracefully as if it's been knocked out. It actually flies across as if someone's carried it and dropped. And I swear, you know, (laughs) you just look at it in total incredibility. No one's going to believe this. No one's going to believe this. No one's going to believe this. And the three of us go, what? And the the medium really impressed me because the first thing he said was, I don't get it because I don't feel any ghosts. There aren't any ghosts here. I'm not sensing any spirits. And I thought, wow, well, you're genuine. Or at least you believe in what you say because, you know, this has just happened. (laughs) He could have said anything at all when it would have been, you know. But to say, well, I don't sense anything made him look a bit crap. And I was just standing there in slack-jawed amazement wondering what had happened. And Phil Wyman walked over and he picked up the chocolate bar and he undid it. And I thought he's going to do some kind of analysis. And he ate it. He ate the evidence. At just at that moment, Yvette Fielding, the main presenter of the show, came in and she said, where are you? Where are you? You've missed your call. You're meant to be on camera, blah, blah, blah. And we said, but look, this has just happened. This is amazing. This has just happened. And we told her what happened. And she said, oh, yeah, don't worry about mentioning that. No, you'll believe it. It didn't happen on camera. So something that ha- actually happened that was genuinely, as far as we could tell, paranormal that ha- happened in front of three witnesses was ignored because it didn't happen on camera. Uh, the whole show was from the perspective of, you know, two or three dominant voices and the rest of us were just there to support the narrative but it doesn't exist and because it didn't happen to one of the main people I think you know the fact it happened was considered interesting but they didn't tell the story because it hadn't happened as part of the program and saying oh well this happened when you weren't watching when the cameras weren't here it just you know it seems a bit lame but they just downplayed it completely I mean I think at that point they were totally sincere about actually looking for ghosts on camera but they, they didn't really bother to witness the, pre- the people who'd had experiences in the past it was all forget about the content text reduce it all to 24 hours in a haunted house this is our investigation it's about what happens tonight and the viewers with you the viewers gone in there and it's all about the viewers sort of it succeeded partly because it gave it had a huge 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 community online and in those days it was a forum based community but then when twitter took off i mean there's nothing more fun probably than watching most haunted with two million other people taking the mickey out of it on twitter it really is you know (laughs) it's a major british pastime i think now we're all a bit disillusioned because it's a decade on and we all know that you know what paranormal tv is it was very exciting it was fun to be part of it it was huge i mean in terms of a cable tv show it's the biggest cable tv show of the 2000s so it really had a major cultural impact when was paranormal television first introduced mtv did fear i think around about 2001 maybe 1999 it's somewhere around about then which is kind of put a bunch of teens in a haunted house as far as I can recall I think I saw it possibly once then there was a show called Scariest Places on Earth where they took a camera crew and it was kind of game show style thing will you spend a night in the most haunted house we can find and it was utterly over the top Most Haunted was 2003 and that was the first more serious instead of being game showy and hyped up and about buckets of blood and spooking people it was actually about doing a serious investigation and they did try to be serious originally that was uh 2003 probably peaked about 2005 and they tried to take it to america but it never the british one never really took off in america and america developed its own show called taps the atlantic paranormal society and then paranormal state and a whole load of uh, the canadians had girly ghostbusters there were so many of these shows came along in that decade in the 2000s and by 2010 almost all of them were dead or cancelled so it was 2003 to 2010 was the was the 
real era in which the public went mad for paranormal TV. It was the era of reality TV, though, wasn't it? Big Brother and all that kind of stuff. Do you have Big Brother in America? I think they did. I don't know whether they still do. I don't really watch a lot of reality TV. So I don't, yeah, I don't know. I mean, trouble is, there's so much over here. You don't know. It's still going strong over here. I mean, it's still actually, amazingly, it's still a major cultural force in Britain after about 13 years, Big Brother. And I just kind of think, I, I can't understand the appeal, but, you know, maybe that's just me. I'm a bit crap at in many ways. So No, nope, yeah. I, I totally understand. What's, historically, what's the oldest example or, you know, example going as far back of, scientific methods or technologies being used in you know parapsychology ghost hunting whatever you want to call it okay um if you go back to the 16th century 17th century like yeah probably probably the early late 16th early 17th century there's a kind of rationalist thing going on as a part of the protestant reformation trying to explain away spooks as either demonic activity or just fraud and um, that's when the first attempts are made by people to find natural causes for ghosts there's quite a lot of very well written documents from the 17th century in particular where people have investigated hauntings and are trying to get to the bottom of them and then as we go into to the 18th century that kind of scientific spirit that the age of reason the attempt to explain away the spook becomes more and more the dominant paradigm and that is the great era of course of scratching fanny of cock lane you know about scratching fanny i do not at all but please do tell with a name like that what scratching fanny of cock lane yep the cock lane ghost never heard of it no okay well scratching fanny was a young lady who while well, bet she lived in cock lane obviously in london and it's it's a long and complicated story i say google it actually but basically for a long time her bed seemed to shake when she was laying in it and vibrate and knocks were heard around the room and the same kind of stories the same kind of phenomena that were seen around the fox sisters it hides in the 1820s that led to the birth of spiritualism were associated with this young lady called Fanny. And it was eventually suggested that she was scratching with her toes on a, on a sheet and popping her knees and that she'd fake the whole thing. And it's a really complicated case with possibilities of death, murder and all kinds of stuff caught up with it. But she was basically accused and exposed of, as a fraud. Whether she was a fraud or not, it's hard to say now. But the Cock Lane ghost was the sensation of London. And when it was finally poo-pooed, it put paid for a lot of popular belief in ghosts and of course Johnson goes on to say Samuel Johnson said that when it comes to ghosts all the belief is for it and all the evidence is against it by the end of the 18th century going into the 19th century the dominant idea was that ghosts were caused by hallucination caused by ill health and that if you ate too much cheese or too rich gravy before you went to bed or had cold lobster I understand cold pizza works quite well as well then you might well hallucinate and see spooks that night when Scrooge it has the ghost of Jacob Marley appeared to him in A Christmas Carol. I don't know if you've ever read the novel or seen the film. There's more of gravy than grave about you. That's right, yeah, because it's a spectre caused by troubled indigestion, is what he says. That's the line, exactly. And that was the 18th and 19th century rationalist medical approach. And that lasted through until, oh, well into the 19th century, but in the late 1880s, the Society for Psychical Research was founded, and spiritualism had become a bit of a fad, and in 1882, a bunch of fellows from Cambridge University got together and set about creating a society to investigate scientifically hauntings, supernatural, mesmerism, what we would now call hypnotism, 
all manner of unusual phenomena. And uh, some of them actually have now passed into accepted science, some of the things they were investigating. This is the thing about parapsychology, though. It's negatively defined. As soon as we actually find an explanation for what causes something, it stops being part of parapsychology and becomes part of another science. <laughs> so anyway, won't worry about that for the moment. Yeah, so the Society for Psychical Research, which I'm a member of, was founded in 1882, and it continues to the current day. Their methods... Well, one of the things that I find most infuriating is James Randi always used to say, every time, always used to say, well, why don't they get magicians to go along and look at these cases? Because the magician will soon find out how the trick is done and explain the ghost away. Well, actually, if you go back to the original members of the Society for Psychical Research, there's a good dozen or so first-rate magic circle conjurers amongst them. When they went to Naples, for example, in 1904 to investigate the, mu the medium Eusapia Palladino, there was Carrington, uh, Harewood Carrington, uh, Bagley and Fielding, and all three of them had some knowledge of conjuring. Two of them were Magic Circle members. So throughout history, first-rate conjurers have been members of the Society for Psychical Research. So it's just one sceptical argument that infuriates me because it's based on total ignorance of the actual history of how investigations have been conducted. But what you would do is you would send out your learned intellectuals who would go along and cross-examine people. Let's give you an example. So Frank Podmore, who was one of the founders of the Fabian Society and what went on to become the Labour Party over here in Britain, he was a young man, academically inclined, a senior civil servant, worked for the post office, and he took off to Wem in Shropshire. And there's another burning ghost story associated with Wem involving a famous ghost photograph. But he went there, and the case they had was that uh, the poltergeist, for such it was claimed to be, used to knock and make a few noises. But the main thing it would do was set fire to the baby. And the baby of the house used to quite often catch fire. It only ever seemed to happen when the nanny, who was younger of about 14 was alone with the baby she would run around flapping which would unfortunately cause the flames to go up so the mother the best line ever recorded in any academic or scientific journal is in the proceedings of the society for psychical research which said i was present says podmore when i heard the mother explain to the nanny next time the baby catches fire crush it out don't wave it around and flap girl crush it out it's the only way to be sure <laughs> Sorry, I just found that really funny for some reason. But anyway, both situations are not ideal. No, they're not. But it's better to just hold the baby and, and starve it of oxygen, starve the fire of oxygen rather than flap it around. Like, oh, I don't know. Anyway, the notion of a. <laughs> In its lead based paint line crib. Yeah. Well, you've got to say, actually, to be honest, if you think about it, in terms of actual things to have to tell somebody, you know, what to do in event of baby catching fire because spooks set fires. <laughs> it's like something from Monty Python, isn't it? It is, absolutely. Let's go back to the to the actual plot. So Podmore carried out a careful investigation, for part of which involved looking at the young girl's apron and discovering that around her, A, she smelt of diesel, B, there seemed to be some evidence that she'd been carrying cans of diesel about, and C, she had a copious supply of matches upon her purse. Well, there we go then. Yeah, that was what Podmore said, case closed. And indeed, the uh, young lady was dismissed and that ended the ghost. The other ghost story from Wem in Shropshire... If you Google Ghost Girl of Wem, you'll find a picture that's supposed to be a picture of a young woman standing in the town hall at Wem. What happened was there was a fire there, I think it was 1993, something like that, and the town hall burnt down and a photographer was taking pictures of the fire and one of them shows what appears to be a young girl in a frilly mob cap standing in the doorway staring out of the fire where there could not possibly have been a human being at that moment. And... 
this caused immense excitement because lots of spiritualists said that it was a, a real, you know, a ghost girl. Skeptics were very hard pushed to explain it away. Eventually what happened was a group called ASAP, which I belong to, in fact I edit their journal, which is a peer-reviewed academic journal, they went to immense effort to get hold of the footage and to examine the shots before and after, and they explained away the girl's mob cap and face as being the end of a burning beam, and it had just been caught at the exact right moment to give that impression. So it was a spontaneous phenomena. I think it might actually still be on the Wikipedia entry for pareidolia, which is, you know, similarcrums, phenomena, pictures that appear which aren't actually real, but are just, you know, you know, a piece of toast that looks like Jesus or whatever. You, you know the kind of thing I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. yeah. yeah, absolutely. But the ghost girl of Wem is on there. But actually it gets funnier because the sceptics went to immense trouble to explain her away and to explain exactly how falling beams and heating, etc., had generated the smoke and generated the image. And then a couple of years ago, somebody was going through some old postcards at Wem and they found the girl. And she came from a postcard from the 19, early 1900s and it became absolutely clear that somebody had photographed the postcard <laughs> and slipped the negative under the other negative and you know generated a a fake photo it was really crude if you look on the internet you'll find the whole story but it turned out that the really carefully reasoned skeptical argument that she was caused by burning timbers falling at exactly this angle blah 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 was in fact complete nonsense and in fact it was a case of simple fraud so there you go. So how has the transition from analog photography to digital photography changed things, just out of interest? The first generation of digital photography, no issue. For the very first generation of digital cameras, I went out for a company called Pubs 2000, I think they were called, with one of the early heavy digital cameras photographing pubs or websites. And then there was a whole load of chip architecture changed and digital cameras got a lot cheaper. I can't remember the exact difference in how the chips varied, but the second generation used a different setup because they were cheaper to produce, but they had a problem. And the problem was that they produced these things called orbs. Uh, of course, you know, you get jokes, you know, hello, hello ladies, show us your orbs and all that kind of crap. But orbs became a big cultural thing over here had you left england by that time basically i think that came in with you could now but if you watch something called uk living tv that was that was yeah. well in by then yeah the first season of most haunted which was before i joined up with them so 2003 they were really they were fanatical about orbs and all an orb is is a, a small you know disc of white light it's clearly some kind of reflection i was working at derby jail it's not actually an open prison it's a it's a historical center up in derby obviously a kind of 18th century prison that's been reopened as a heritage centre. Somebody had said to me, I think that they're just dust. What's happening is when you use a flash, the flash is hitting the dust and just reflecting. So they're just reflections. And I discovered already by experimenting that you could get quite good orbs by photographing moths because, you know, moths with their wings blaring can cause that. But no, you know, you can actually work out their moths. But just these simple discs. So what I did was one after one evening, I tried an experiment in which Becky, my girlfriend, she emptied the Hoover bag and she chucked dust into the air. I mean, I hate to think how much dust we breathed in. And I stood there just taking photographs. And obviously we got millions of orbs. And after that, we'd do a thing which we would teach people how to raise the psychic energies when they came. We'd get them to 
hold hands and do circle dancing, you know, where you go around in a circle spinning faster and faster. To raise up the dust. To raise up the dust. And I'd snap photos and the more the faster they danced and the more they stomped their feet, the more dust there was and the more orbs there were. And the happier they were till I explained it was just dust. So orbs, they had a brief life, three or four years, during which everybody was really excited. ASAP actually paid money, proper grant, proper research grant, and did serious experiments with stereoscopic cameras, etc., to prove once and for all that they were just point reflections of light and nothing more and nothing less. By the time I got involved with Most Haunted, which was Series 2, we already knew that they were rubbish, and I told everybody involved with the show, I was researcher, that they were rubbish. And that is why orbs get mentioned less and less on Most Haunted after that until they forget about them entirely by the time everybody knows that orbs are just dust. But when we did the Woodchester show, the spiritualist group who camped out overnight at the mansion, Woodchester Mansion, we camped out in the grounds and they camped out in the building. And when they were interviewed on the TV show, I'll never forget because they asked Lisa, my American housemate, do you have anything to say about your experiences in the haunted house? And she said, when do I get paid? (laughs) On live TV, which I thought was quite funny but when they asked these people they said orbs well you see orbs are the first stages of spirit manifestation they're ghost fetuses and i just stood there utterly shocked and the camera pans around to my face i think of the original version of the footage because if you buy the dvd versions nowadays they're actually edited to be a lot shorter that takes out the team that takes out all the advert breaks and all the embarrassing bits but there's just this look of t- total horror you can probably find it on the internet of me standing there not believing what i'm hearing when i when, when, when the spiritualists informed me that orbs are the first stage of ghost manifestation i mean yeah i did once write an article saying well actually you know i can't rule out that all orbs are dust you know maybe maybe there's something to it maybe some orbs are paranormal you know maybe if they're unusual in some way maybe if they're actually a burning ball of light that you saw with a naked eye they're not the same as an orb but most orbs were just an artifact of cheap digital camera technology and ironically is that the first generation didn't of digital cameras didn't have them which is why i went through 300 photos i took for pubs 2000 and didn't find any orbs then the second generation did and nowadays we're back to the stage where i can take endless photos and unless i'm taking them with rain on the lens you know i will not see a single orb anymore have you noticed that and what about computing as well has anybody tried to apply computers to uh ghost hunting or parapsychology well, same systems as used on the Franks box. You can do, you know, random scans of text, etc., to try and generate what the spirits are saying to you. Computers are used more and more. In the 60s, Tony Cornell, who was a friend of mine for many years, fell out before he died, sadly. Shame. It was a misunderstanding, actually, by the by, but... Tony and Alan Gould and Howard Wilkinson, they got their act together from the SBR, Society for Psychical Research, and they decided that they would build some kind of device that would be used to monitor haunted houses. Because the three of them had been sitting, I think it was the three of them, spent one night sitting in the attics of a haunted house in Cambridgeshire, listening to all this stuff going down. But they had no, they wanted numbers, they wanted measurable physical phenomena, you know, stuff that they could actually look at on paper and understand. You know, the beginning of the new Ghostbusters movie where they managed to get the readings on the ghost and they work out from that the physics of, you know, the supernatural. Yep. So that's what they wanted to do. 
So they decided that they would build a device with a computer attached to it. And the, the device was built, and over the years it changed. By the early 80s, it was in its current form. It was called the Spider. I can't remember what Spider stands for, actually. But it was, effectively, it was a series of pressure monitors and pressure gauges, temperature gauges, video cameras, sound recording. So when something happened in the environment that changed one of the, you know, triggers, it would activate the recording equipment. And what it would do was they had a, I think it was a ZX81 or something like that, a very simple home computer, one of the early home computers, with a load of peripheral sockets, ran the beastie, and it recorded tape. So, yeah... They used it and they took it out. And I think that was the last great effort at scientific ghost hunting before you had the TV ghost hunters with their with their slightly bizarre ideas. And they took out this device to a number of haunted houses. And there was one classic moment when they called me up and they said, it was Tony called me up and he said they got something. And I never found out what it was until I went to a conference and I asked him. And it turned out that they a children's mobile you know child's mobile thing that hangs from the ceiling yeah yeah absolutely yeah yeah there was no draft registered on the candles or on the device but it would spin around and play a tune or something i think i can't remember but it was really slow and incredibly dull from what i heard and it reminds me of a scene from poltergeist when they're really excited because the toy car has remember this have you ever seen poltergeist yeah absolutely i've seen all of them there's a bit where the where a toy car as i recall moves across the floor about half a foot or something and the parapsychologists are dead excited about it that's what it reminded me of but the spider anyway i was with peter at the spr office i went down to london last week and he said oh i don't know what to do with this i wish i could throw it out i said you can't do that because the spider has come home and it now sits in the spr offices there's some tech there there's there's a mysterious black box and they've they've got hold of the company who manufactured it in the 20s or 30s who are still going today and have got a full-time professional archivist and have got the details of every device they ever built and who it was for and the client etc uh, except for this one device which has a serial number which isn't listed and nobody in the SPR knows what it was supposed to do so that's a mysterious bit of ghost hunting technology I should send you a photo of that the mystery of the box it's sitting in the spr office if anyone wants to go along and have a look you're very welcome yeah mysterious black box i mean we've got we, you can see some of the things it does it's got a whole load of dials on it and meters but yeah some kind of ghost hunting equipment of the 40s harry price in the 1940s set up his own national laboratory for psychical research and i think it's university college london who've actually got all of the stuff from that they've got the harry price collection at senate house and they've got his equipment and stuff and he was really into his scientific ghost hunting. I think the scientific ghost hunters always kind of stood aside and, you know, they disparaged the mediums and the mediums disparaged the, the, the scientific types. But it's a long story and it's not over yet. We may yet still find something. I think we will, actually. I think we will find more and more. You remember the great infrasound excitement? Is that the stuff that makes you hallucinate? Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm very cynical about it. Vic Tandy, he was working in a lab at Cov University sharpening a fencing foil uh, well he was working in the lab when he felt the ghost in the lab that everybody was spooked by blah 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 you know there was one spot where people got freaked out and then he noticed his fencing foil was vibrating so he figured that what was actually happening was he was in the presence of some kind of sound that was affecting him emotionally so he measured it as best he could and decided it was just below human auditory range hence infrasound and he decided it was probably about 19.5 megahertz because he looked on the internet and he found a 
NASA study saying that there were some theories that the human eye could vibrate at 19.5 megahertz. There's various attempts have been made by various research groups over the years to use it for pernicious and military reasons and stuff like that. I understand, though. I actually know almost nothing about the subject. But the thing is that skeptics jumped on it and said, well, ghosts are finally explained. Ghosts are just what happens when you're exposed to low-frequency sound. But actually, Tandy didn't think that exposure to low-frequency sound was enough. You actually needed to be in the presence of a standing wave. You know what a standing wave is? Do tell. Well, it's where the, imagine from your speaker, the sound travels, hits the wall, and then comes back. And the point at which the, the sound doubles back on the sound, you have a standing wave effect, yeah? Oh, yeah. Yep, got you. A standing wave is where you've got distortion from two sound waves colliding, as I understand it. I mean, I had very little idea. I heard Tandy talk about it once, I think. I know a few of Tandy's friends who talked about, you know, his research, but that is actually what he talked about in his paper. So it's not just the presence of infrasound. Infrasound is ubiquitous. Infrasound goes over the roof, the wind going over your roof. You know, all the time we're surrounded by infrasound. Dr. Steve Parsons has written a book called Paraaudiology. I should send you a copy for Christmas, actually. I will do. Which is on science of sound and the paranormal. And he knows way more about this subject than I ever will. But my gut feeling is that 90% of what has been written on it by people since Tandy has been complete rubbish. In fact, one of the things I do on my blog over the years is every three or four months, a paper comes out and is published in New Scientist or something which says, and now we can explain ghosts because what actually happened is this new science has shown us what ghosts really were. And in each case, it's really crap science because it doesn't explain at all the experiences that people have. And it's made me very, very cynical about a lot of modern science journalism. Not about science, because there's often some good science there, but the application of it, the, the headline grabbing and we're explaining away ghosts when clearly they aren't and they don't even they're not even aware that there's a body of research literature on ghosts which is you know serious academic research literature on the apparitional experience you know my girlfriend becky's phd is on the apparitional experience that's a hundred thousand hundred and thirty thousand words worth of tedium there straight away for you to get through i mean just for the audience as well i mean that's a good point her phd was done at coventry was it derby coventry etc yeah coventry was where vic tandy's place vic had died heart failure before she started and she did hers with ian hume who was vic's phd student and so she actually in, in the end she ended up with i can't remember chris rowe was her was he no he was her external examiner she went she went for a number of supervisors over the years but proper uk academically you know accepted phd but what she did was really quite interesting clearly if you listen to you you know obviously you and i were talking this is a halloween special it's a quirky look at technology and applications but it's very clear that you're a rationalist and it's very clear that you're using research skills you're using information and clearly the body of information you know you've thought about what you're applying your art your science whatever you want to call it to and if you know you're out in the field or you're researching a case what sort of interdisciplinary skills would you say that you would use if you're applying it to a ghost ghost hunt or a ghost research project nowadays i'm spending more and more time doing lab-based stuff beck her research was largely based on looking at accounts and actually she was trying to construct psychological understanding of what actually happens in the apparitional experience she did some work on the neuro of it but at the end of the day the lab is where we will finally understand what's going on in hauntings my first problem is that i don't see much point in most of the ghost hunters were at the moment i think there's a fundamental flaw in their logic which is go back to when we see a ghost what happens you're sitting in your room you turn around to look at the door and suddenly uh you see the ghost of barbara cartland is barbara cartland still alive 
Nope, nope, she's not. Oh, there you go. The ghost of Barbara Cartland comes in and tells you that she'd like a gin. What's actually happening when you see the ghost of Barbara Cartland? If you're seeing Barbara Cartland, you need help. <laughs> so you'd, you'd immediately assume it was caused by your own mental ill health. Like last night, did you dream? Um, good question. I think I did. Right, okay. Let's imagine for a moment then that you dreamt that you were running through a field of carrots pursued by a small character called Elmer Fudd with a shotgun. Yeah? In that dream... None of that stuff that you experienced in the dream was real, was it? No. So what was it? It was a dream. It was a product of your imagination. It was a hallucination. It seemed real to you at the time, didn't it? Yeah. When you're in the dream, it seems as real as everything else. Absolutely. Hallucinations. We all hallucinate every night when we sleep. There is nothing surprising about the brain's capacity to generate amazingly complex hallucinations, is there? No. Do it every night when we sleep, and they can seem as real as anything else. I have no problem with hallucinations. It's just the idea of Barbara Cartland. I'd be thinking, what's going on with me? But if you now hallucinated Barbara Cartland and imposed her on your physical reality, so it seems as if she was actually standing in front of you, yeah, that is not such a surprising thing for a human brain to be able to do, is it? No, no, not at all. No. No. I mean, you know, okay, it's it might be surprising you chose to hallucinate Barbara Cartland, but if we were in a medieval monastery and suddenly we saw a monk walking down a corridor towards us oh you saw that and i didn't then you know the fact that you were capable of hallucinating that is not particularly surprising especially as the set and setting led towards that hallucination yeah do people hallucinate in broad daylight under normal conditions when they're not ill or under the influence of drugs Yes. Yes, they do. Surprisingly commonly. And in 1894, the Society for Psychical Research had conducted 15,000 interviews asking people, have you ever, while in good health, while not under the influence of drugs or illness, you know, experienced a hallucination? And they found that 9.8% of people said, yes, we have. So one in 10, roughly just under one in ten but you know that's where the figure one in ten people say they've seen a ghost which you sometimes see in pub quizzes or trivia that's where it comes from it comes from the 1894 spr census of hallucinations and the spr were quite shocked by that because at the time the prevailing medical belief was that only mad people experienced hallucinations only really sick people and that if you saw her had a hallucination there must by definition be something wrong with you but actually most people who hallucinated suffered no ill effects whatsoever they were short-term temporary experiences experiences and they were quickly forgotten so if we are constantly able to hallucinate now the next complicating factor is of course that your eyes are if as you know are actually perceiving the room you're in upside down and that your blind spot is being edited out by you know your mind's visual software and in fact your brain is actually creating for you the image that you are perceiving as your room so in a sense your actual every image you ever perceive is a form of hallucination it's an internally generated fantasy based upon sense datum received through your eyes and your nervous system but then interpreted by your brain yeah most of the time it just happens to be extremely objective consensus reality emulating hallucination yeah so the notion that we might have another hallucination imposed upon that hallucination is not really so surprising our brains are capable of generating images and in 1894 the society said well actually nobody will ever be able to photograph a ghost because ghosts are not when you see a ghost if you took a photo of it there wouldn't be anything there because barbara cartland is not physically present she is not reflecting light photons there is nothing occupying that space but a hallucinatory figure which only exists within your mind that was their opinion in 1894 and that has been the dominant belief in parapsychology ever since so if ghosts are effectively 
internally generated hallucinatory episodes, then ghost hunting with any kind of technological equipment, unless in fact perhaps it's an fMRI scan or some other way of looking at the brain, dead salmon apart. I mean, I'm sure you know about the problems with fMRI scans and brain scanning at the moment. But whatever the situation might be, we're not going to record anything because a ghost is something that happens inside people. Hence why the Ghostbusters are physicists this time around. Yeah, except there is nothing physically there for them to interact with. They would need to be neurologists or experts in hallucinations. Now, the problem with this theory is that if if it is a hallucination rather than a physical construct, if it is something that's happening inside your brain, close your eyes for a moment and imagine imagine a green triangle. There you go. We'll have a green triangle. Can you imagine a green triangle? Yes. Try and see the green triangle. Try and visualise it intensely. Okay. That green triangle is effectively a ghost. It's something that you're summoning up in your mind that only exists within your mind. Now, try again, but I want you to try and see a pink unicorn. Okay. Now, purple dinosaur. <laughs> Called Barney. There you go. Okay. Right. All of those images exist of consciousness in consciousness, but apart from possibly being reflected by a few, you know, neurons firing in your brain, they don't actually have any external reality, do they? No, not at all. Not at all. Right. Now imagine that both of us entered a room and we both saw a purple dinosaur dancing in the room. Okay. Do you see the problem? Yeah. Hallucinations, by definition, are internally generated fantasies. So no amount of equipment is going to allow us to record Barney the dinosaur dancing in the room in front of us. All our implements, no matter how great our instrumentation is, all it's going to reveal is the fact we're pointing it at something where there is nothing. Yeah. So no ghost photograph, by definition, can ever exist because there's no light photons to bounce off because it's happening in our brains. Well, this is what Myers, Gurney, Podmore, etc. decided from their study of 15,000 and responses were that ghosts were something were just dreams imposed upon our waking life yeah and what you're actually seeing is something in the brain now the problem they had was explaining collective cases where several people saw the same thing at the same time like my story at the priory where all five of us saw it yeah so they came up with a theory to explain it which was they decided that some brains were able to impress their hallucination on other brains around them and they postulated there must be some kind of mental radio and they coined a word for it myers coined a word telepathic telepathy and he said that when people see ghosts it is because of telepathy So this was necessary to explain 150 cases they had, because in about 150 cases, something odd happened, which basically... Okay, imagine I now keel over and hit the floor, yeah? Suddenly, in your house, you see me with a sword through the back of my head, stagger around for a moment, reach out for the Guatemalan rum, and then fall, disappear, yeah? And then you discover that my housemate has just murdered me with a sword subsequently at exactly the time you saw me. Now, obviously, because it wouldn't be particularly impressive because we're talking to one another, but imagine for a moment we weren't actually talking to one another Yeah. when that happened, but you just saw me, but it subsequently turned out it happened at the exact moment of my death, yeah? Well, these so-called crisis apparitions were surprisingly common in their study and where people could not possibly have known about the death of somebody in India or Australia or South Africa, but wrote down on a calendar or told others that they were dead long before they could have known about it yeah yep those experiences were explained by myers and gurney by their notion of telepathy which was a system by which brains somehow reached out so my dying brain reaches out and transmits an image that is picked up by you and the the belief in telepathy was then expanded in 1924 by a chap called rudolf tischner into extrasensory perception he came up with different types of mental power and finally gen 
general ESP was what it was uh, summarised as. So ESP takes different forms. But from 1924 onwards, they talked about ESP as if it was a proven fact. And ESP was very popular as a way of explaining away ghosts. They were just mental projections of the dying, or, or they were the living scanning the environment and learning information and paranormally and then creating a ghost to explain how they had learned something that they had actually learned through clairvoyance, etc., etc. And they spun whole elaborate fantasies about how ESP worked. But the problem was, but the more they studied it in the lab, the more problems they had in actually trying to pin it down. And that carries on to the present day. So one of the things I thought was really interesting that came out of this interview, you know, as I said, it was it was a quirky Halloween episode, but I think there's a lot in there that's actually just really cool. You know, whether it was a normal episode or not, it would, it would kind of work in a way. And I think with the parapsychology thing, it was very interesting that we ended up talking about throughout, really, how different media shape and sort of interact with quirky subjects like parapsychology on the technical end I would say orbs really interesting you know and camera sensors and how this phenomena of using cheaper hardware as you go along can you know in terms of human interaction create certain things or you know for want of a better term I guess fantasies anyway really enjoyed this episode I hope you enjoyed listening to it and once again have a happy Halloween hello there my name's Adam Spring, and I'm here to talk to you about a number of ways in which you can stay connected with and contribute to the Remotely Interested podcast. As I've said before, it's listener-supported, and I love to include you guys as, as much as I can. Anyway, the big two are iTunes and SoundCloud, which you can subscribe to. Also, for SoundCloud, you can follow, you can like, you can share, you can do a number of things with the content that I put up there. There's also Google Play, where you can check this podcast out, and there's also a Facebook page that you can like. Now, in terms of connecting with me directly, there's a Twitter handle which is at that interested you can also follow and reach out to me there and there's also the remotely interested email as well which is contact at remotely-interested.com anyway love doing this for you I hope you enjoy it and thanks for listening to the show <laughs> <laughs>